Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in today for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, this March, Tibetans in exile all around the world will observe the 65th anniversary of the uprising in Tibet against China that forced many of them to flee their homes. Journalist Amy Yi spent years in Dharmasala in India, home of the largest Tibetan refugee population. And she joins us to share stories from those who fled in the 1950s, including the Dalai Lama and more recent political refugees. We'll learn about how Tibetan refugees across four continents are maintaining a connection to their homeland and creatively preserving their culture in new nations. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim. Tibet is located on the world's highest plateau. Its average elevation is about 14,000 feet, and because of that, it's nicknamed the rooftop of the world. But many Tibetans haven't been there for years or even decades. After China invaded and annexed Tibet in the 1950s, more than 100,000 Tibetans, including the Dalai Lama, fled, and the majority live with him in the city of Dharmasala in India. They are citizens of what is considered the Tibetan government in exile. Journalist Amy Yi has been documenting their stories in Dharmasala, as well as refugees who have landed in other parts of the world like Australia, Belgium, and New York. She joins us now to talk about the people, the places, and the festivals she chronicles in her new book, Far From the Rooftop of the World, Travels Among Tibetan Refugees on Four Continents. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be on the show. Let's start with a little bit of history. Can you briefly take us back to the 1950s, to what Tibetan refugees call Tibetan Uprising Day? What happened in that 1959 uprising? Yeah, um, on March 10th um, in uh, 1959, um, China forcefully um, took over Tibet. So at that time, um, troops had come in and um, there were suspicions that um, the Dalai Lama might be um, 
um, detained. So he and his advisors had made plans to clandestinely leave. Um, but um, before that happened, there was a show of resistance from Tibetan people. Um, and then the Dalai Lama was able to um, slip out in disguise and make his way to India, where he has been living in exile since 1959. And why did he choose Dharmasala? Oh, um, so he didn't necessarily choose it. Um, Dharmasala at that time, Dharmasala is a small town in the foothills of the Himalayas in India. At the time, it was almost a ghost town because um, in the early 1900s, there was a huge earthquake and it just decimated the town. Um, people didn't necessarily want to live there because of the earthquake risk. So it was, it was pretty empty. And um, there was um, a longtime resident, uh, Mr. Naroji, who the lore has it that he somehow suggested um, to the Indian government, and somehow this word got to Nehru, um, the prime minister at the time, that Dharmasala might be a good home for the Dalai Lama. And so um, in 1960 is, is when uh, he went to live there. So um, I don't know if the Dalai Lama was aware of Dharmasala at that time. Um, my, guess, my guess is not. But interestingly, Dharmasala, um, the word um, actually means um, shelter. So um, just by coincidence. And so this town has become um, a microcosm of Tibet because about more than 10,000 um, Tibetan exiles and refugees live there. It's the seat of the Tibetan government in exile. And of course, it's the home of the Dalai Lama. And so it was the sleepy town in the hill, in the sort of uh, the, the hills there that it, without right. much going on. And now you're yeah. saying thousands of Tibetans live there. So what is it like to walk through the streets today? Well, today, I, the last time I was there was, was a while ago. So um, I'll tell you what it was like then. So it is a really... Um, in some ways quite picturesque because you can see these white snow caps in the distance. So, you know, it is reminiscent of some of the scenery you might see um, in Tibet, mountains, mm -hmm. um, uh, green trees, um, evergreens. Um, however, it is a small town and highly congested. So, um, uh, there are a lot of new buildings going up. Um, there's a lot of development and construction happening. Um, and like a lot of towns and cities in India, it's really crowded. Um, it's not very clean. Um, so, and that's, that's very common in India. So um, the clean um, spaces that I saw where there was no litter was actually on the um, circular um, route called the Kora, which is a... a sort of a big circle, which um, Tibetans and other people walk as, um, uh, you know, for, for um, spiritual purposes. So that was the, the place where I saw no trace of litter, which um, is a great thing in India. <laughs> well, that's, that's nice. So we've got over the, you know, between 1959 and then if you fast forward over to, to 2008, you've got thousands of Tibetans now living, living in this town. And on the 49th anniversary of the Tibetan Uprising Day of this, that day in 1959 where the Dalai Lama fled, uh, 
what happened if we if we go from Dharmasala to to Lhasa in Tibet? What happened in two thousand eight? So in March two thousand eight, um, usually on the anniversary of the Tibetan uprising. Um, which is March 10th, there's often some kind of demonstration or some kind of commemoration, definitely in exile. And then in Tibet that year, um, demonstrations, because, you know, Tibet is under China, the, um, the government of China, there usually aren't demonstrations per se, um, because people don't usually publicly protest in China without repercussions. Um, but that year in Tibet, there were demonstrations and they turned violent. So there were clashes with um, government authorities, police, um, and um, over 100 people were killed, both Tibetans and Chinese. Um, there were riots. Um, so this was the biggest um, violent unrest in greater China since Tiananmen Square in 1989. So it was, it was big news. And so in response, you are a reporter at the time for the Financial Times, and you attended a press conference that was given by the Dalai Lama in Dharmasala. You fly in, uh, and you're in a pool of reporters standing there, and, and you meet the Dalai Lama. It's kind of an incredible story. So, so take us to what happened. Yeah, so March 2008, I had no idea that I was going to go to Dharmasala. I didn't know much about it. Um, even though I, I had been to Tibet before as a backpacker years before um, before I became a journalist. But uh, suddenly I was told by my editor to, editor to get up to Dharmasala, and it's not, not the easiest place to get to. And then I was all the way in southern India, in uh, Bangalore. So it's quite... Uh, quite a trek. So walk anyway, us through the trek because I think it's actually quite visual. Yeah, and it just gives you a sense of um, how journalists have to turn to whatever news breaks, right? So I was in Bangalore, which is a three-hour flight from New Delhi, where I was living. New Delhi's the capital. So I was told in the one afternoon I had to get up to Dharmasala the next day in the morning for this press conference, and so I had to quickly uh, get on a flight up to uh, Delhi, and then uh, usually, there's a very small plane that goes to Dharmasala. Of course, that was completely booked. So I had to fly to a different city near the Pakistan border called Amritsar. Um, that flight was like 5 a.m. in the morning. Mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, in the few hours I had back home in Delhi, I had to quickly pack. And uh, for I don't know how long, you know, I didn't know how long I'd be there. So just swept into everything into a little suitcase. Got to um, Amritsar um, early, uh, very early in the morning, and then I was supposed to get picked up by a taxi, which didn't show up. And this isn't in the book, by the way, but I was I spent a long time trying to find this driver, and it turns out he was asleep. And so <laughs> finally, when he woke up, he, he came and got me, and we had a five-hour Jeep ride up up these mountain roads to Dharmasala, that this town. You're like, it's and not so, a good time for a nap, buddy. I gotta go. Yes, and I was working on a different article during the cheap ride, so that gives you some uh, some insight what it's what it's like to be reporting like this. And so when I arrived in Dharmasala, I'd never been there. It was, um, you know, very. It was it was crowded in the streets because there were thousands of Tibetans who were peacefully demonstrating and protesting in solidarity of what was happening in Tibet, which was um, 
you know, they wanted to give um, um, solidarity to their compatriots in Tibet because there was a very repressive government crackdown happening in Tibet because of the, the protests that had turned violent. So what I saw when I arrived were, were streets full of people peacefully demonstrating, protesting, holding signs um, about human rights, um, holding the Dalai Lama's portrait picture, which is banned in Tibet and you can get you arrested, holding the Tibetan flag, which can also get you arrested in Tibet. So I was really struck by that because this was like a parallel universe where mm. Tibetans could express themselves freely in exile and couldn't do that in Tibet. And in fact, we're being uh, repressed, arrested, detained, and worse, people were getting shot and killed um, for doing something similar. So you're standing there in a pool of reporters with the New York Times and Reuters, etc., and all waiting for the Dalai Lama to speak. And then what happened? Yeah, so actually, this press conference, I, I was so late to the press conference that all the seats were taken. And so I sat on the floor in the very first, in the very front. So the Dalai Lama could see me pretty clearly. And I had asked a question. In fact, I asked a question about his response to um, the violence that was happening, but we can I can return to that. Um, so uh, at the end of the press conference, which was two hours long, it's a long press conference, and uh, instead of ending, he made a beeline to me, and um, he could see that I'm um, I'm a, I'm Chinese American, born in the U.S. and my parents are from Hong Kong and ethnically Chinese. So he came over to me and he was really excited to see someone who was uh, even ethnically Chinese. And he said, "Chinese?" And I I was like, "Oh, um, well, I'm I'm American." Um, but he was really excited and he pinched my cheeks like like a grandfather would. <laughs> and then he said, um, "It's between." Tibet and China, we must discuss. It's between us, and you must tell them. Wow. And then he grabbed me in a bear hug and held me in his embrace for what seemed like a while, maybe it was a minute or so. But usually as a reporter, you're not, you're not part of the story like that. And then suddenly here I was um, getting hugged by the Dalai, the Dalai Lama and also all these photographers from like Reuters and Associated Press were taking this photo. That photo ended up going out on wire services and landed up in newspapers around the world. So that wow. was the start of my my trip to Dharmasala. And we will, we will take it from there. We have to go to a break right now. We're talking to Amy Yee about her new book, Far From the Rooftop of the World. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim, and we're talking about the stories of Tibetans who are living outside of Tibet in Dharmasala in India and in other parts of the world. We're joined by Amy Yi. She's a journalist, and she's the author of the new book, Far From the Rooftop of the World. And we would love to bring callers and our audience members uh, into the conversation. Maybe you have a connection to Tibet or to Dharmasala, and you have a a story to share or an anecdote. Uh, We'd love to hear it. Maybe you have a question for our guest, Amy Yi. Email your comments and your questions to forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on social media at KQED Forum. We're on Twitter or X, Instagram, or our our digital community on Discord. You can also just give us a call right now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And Amy, we were just, you just left off in your bear hug with the Dalai Lama, which, you know, <laughs> that's a pretty incredible yeah. story. But but maybe that moment or, or maybe other moments while you were in Dharmasala inspired you to stay. So, so tell us, why did you stay in, in Dharmasala eventually um, to get to know the Tibetan refugees? What was the inspiration there? Yeah, so um, that first reporting trip, I was there for about a week, which is a, a pretty long time if you're a reporter, because usually you have to move on. So I got to spend um, a bit of time there, but then I eventually you know, did end up li- moving there and living there for about a year, and then I would return every year for many years um, to continue reporting and to um, catch up with people. But... Sometimes people will say, oh, so the Dalai Lama um, told you to write the book and that's why you wrote it. And I just have to clarify, that's not it's not why I wrote it. I don't think he had that in mind. And um, uh, what compelled me was hearing the stories of Tibetan people I met, um, even in that first week, where I was, first of all, amazed at um, this um, very, very vibrant expression of Tibetan identity and culture. And then I was really intrigued with how Tibetans preserve culture and identity in exile. There's some Tibetans who were born in Tibet. And so, I'm sorry, there are some Tibetans who were born in India, so they've never been to Tibet. And so they're still very Tibetan. (laughs) And in some ways can be even more Tibetan because they can learn the Tibetan language in these Tibetan schools that are set up um, throughout India. They can learn about Tibetan history and geography and culture and practice um, arts. Um, So these things are very restricted within Tibet. So I was completely fascinated with that. And I have to say that I'm always intrigued with um, these issues of identity because I am Asian American. So um, very interested in people who are moving between different worlds. How does that work? So there, you're in Dharmasala and you've got these, you've got Tibetan schools, you've got a Tibetan government, even a governor, I think. So how does that work with the Indian government? How does the whole situation sort of function? Um, I mean, India does recognize um, the Tibetan exile government, but its powers are limited. So they don't necessarily have um, political um, uh, power official political power within India, but they administer schools, they administer um, their um, monasteries, and also Tibetans who live even further abroad. Um, So they hold um, elections, um, 
And so it is recognized. It's not, I mean, Tibetans still live under Indian law. So um, it's not qu- it's not quite the same as, for example, in in the U.S., where you have um, Native American reservations with their own tribal government. I wouldn't say it's as um, official or formal as that. I see. Well, you're there that first week. Maybe is there is there a refugee from that first week that really captured you, or, or in the coming months while you were there that you want to share? Yeah, um, there are three main people who I follow through the book, um, which starts in 2008, and then the last chapters in 2021, which I did not expect, because I didn't expect this book would take so long <laughs> to get published. Um, but it meant that I could follow people for a long time and across different geographies where they eventually went. But the person we meet in the very first chapter is a monk, and he was in his... 30s at the time, and he'd been a monk since he was a boy in Tibet and decided to leave um, Tibet um, so he could study uh, Tibetan religion freely in India. And he left as a young man. And I don't think he thought when he left that he would never see his family again. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the case. He still hasn't seen his family to this day, he can't really go back. Um, so when I meet him, I m- met him quite serendipitously um, in a veterinary clinic in Dharmasala because I had found a um, an injured street cat, and uh, I do love animals. And so I brought, I, I heard about this clinic and brought the cat in, and. Um, the monk's name in the book is Topton, and it just so happened that was his first day working in this um, vet clinic, and it's not really, you know, uh, it's a little unusual for him to be doing that because he was supposed to be, you know, studying, but um, uh, the head of that that charity had had asked him if he would want to do it because they needed someone, so it was really serendipitous, and so. I spent a lot of time at the vet clinic visiting the cat, who I just was very, uh, you know, felt very responsible for and connected to. And so then we we became friends. And so the um, Topton, the monk, and I became friends. And so in the first chapter, we uh, it opens with the two of us watching a basketball game. Um, between two Tibetan um, teams, and uh, one team was the, was the Dalai Lama's bodyguards, and the other team was um, recent refugees um, from a, a particular school. And we were watching them play basketball because he loves basketball. And I was asking him about, you know, identity and, and leaving Tibet and he was like I, I'm just watching the basketball game <laughs> like, I want to so, watch this guy dribble yeah, you shut up completely like absorbed in the basketball game and you know that's not you know he's 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 a man so and he he you know just is a huge basketball fan Beautiful story. Uh, Robert writes, when the Dalai Lama visited San Francisco to speak at Grace Cathedral, we got up at 3 a.m. to drive across the Bay Bridge and get in line. We waited for hours. Finally, exhausted, we were thankful to see the Dalai Lama introduced. His words, and even more so the sound of his voice, was so peaceful and soothing. We both promptly fell asleep, (laughs) awakening to hear him say, thank you for coming. (laughs) If you heard something useful, try to apply it in your own life. If not, forget about it. It doesn't matter. 
That's a great. Poignant, poignant great. image. Can, yeah. can you give us a kind of abbreviated, because it's quite a long story, but can you give us an abbreviated version of the story of uh, Deki? Uh, that's another Tibetan refugee who you follow. Yeah. So Deki is a Tibetan woman I met in um, probably the winter of 2008. And I met her and her husband, whose name is Dundup. And uh, it, again, it was just a serendipitous meeting where a Tibetan um, uh, friend um, introduced us. And the, the friend was a, a chef in a great cafe called Moon Peak Cafe. And I used to go there a lot to eat this delicious um, soup and homemade bread. So I was there a lot. And he said, oh, I have some friends who just arrived from Tibet. Would you help them with their English? And I didn't know anything about them. And I said, sure. Um, and so I would meet with Deki and Dundup just to um, try to practice a little English with them. They they didn't know any English because they, they had just arrived. And so it took a while before I heard about what happened to them and why they left Tibet. And um, they left as a direct consequence of the, the protests that I um, talked about that were happening in March 2008. Um, neither of them are very political or they're not activists at all. In fact, they had, um, they don't have connected backgrounds. They had managed to carve out, um, a much coveted middle-class life, um, and had a nice house in Lhasa. Um, I mean, Deki's father was a construction worker in the past. Um, so this just gives you a sense of who they are. So they had worked really hard, um, and then they helped a friend photocopy some flyers in March 2008, and they the flyers said something like human rights, right? Mm -hmm. And so then later in the year, their friend was arrested. And when their friend was arrested, they decided they had to leave right away. And I had asked Deki, I said, was it hard to decide to leave? I mean, you're, you know, leaving everything you worked so hard for, and not to mention, of course, your family and your friends and everything, you know, your home. This large home that she Yes, described. yeah. And she said, no, our fear was so great. The decision was instant. So then they um, made plans to hire someone to basically, um, you know, smuggle clandestinely get them to near the Nepal border so they could cross over. Um, so they, they paid someone, they paid um, someone to give them a leave of absence from work saying that they had medical reasons. Um, and so they quickly left and crossed over into Nepal and, um, you know, lost everything. And in fact, Deki was um, pregnant and she miscarried during that time. And so when I met them, they had then arrived in India. And so it wasn't, it wasn't too long after, but I didn't even know about this until, until later. Um, and then just to jump forward a little bit, um, eventually Deki asked me to help her with something. And I said, okay, what is it? So they had found work at an Indian call center in Delhi uh, because they could speak fluent Mandarin. And so they were doing calls to hospitals in China, interestingly enough. So they, they had actually found some work. And of course, if you were, you know, a new refugee and you have some income, that's, that's a huge thing. So um, unfortunately, their boss at the call center never paid them. 
So it was just wage theft. They, their boss didn't pay them and a group of other Tibetans. And so um, Deki asked me to help her get them their money. And at first I was like, I don't know what I can do about this. And But she said, well, here's the phone number of the, the boss at the call center. Can you call him? And I it was like, I don't know what I can do. But I, I did call him. And then that this set off some, um, you know, events that I... Uh, uh, got involved with, and I don't know if I should give the spoiler about what happened, but it was an upfront view about how people, vulnerable people, are taken advantage of. And this happens, unfortunately, in so many places. It's happening right now in San Francisco, I'm sure, where people who don't know the language or um, laws and don't have resources are taken advantage of and exploited. So I got really um, um, upset about this and decided that I would help them to get their money. So um, I guess you can... We can, can, we can leave it there. Yes. We, we can leave yes. it there for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, one thing I'd love to circle back with, and then we, we can leave, Decky, but I, you know, they made photocopies, let's say, human rights. That's what they did. And they had to, you know, they felt they needed to leave and flee China for that act. And then they had to start over. And you describe, you know, that she said she was consumed by a hollow sense of loss, trying to remake their life in India. Did they describe, you know, a deep sense of regret? Did they wish they wouldn't have made those photocopies? Right. You know, that's something I asked Decky directly. Um, and she actually, she and Dundup instantly said, no, they didn't regret it. And... Um, you know, I've asked that question to other Tibetans, and they have different answers. I mean, some person, a person I talked to who was imprisoned for seven months for something similar, said he did regret it, but he was in prison and tortured. Um, um, other people didn't hadn't really thought about that question, um, but Deki and Dundab instantly said they didn't regret it. They said, "We did something right. We did something good for Tibet." Wow. Well, let's bring a caller into the conversation. Uh, Barbara, in San Francisco, you're on the air. Thank you so much. I highly recommend a book by Peter Matheson, M-A-T-T-H-I-E-S-S-E-N, that he he, he published in 1978, The Snow Leopard. It is absolute magic in describing how it was there before the, the China... China's overtaking Tibet. Fantastic, Barbara. Thank you so much for those listeners who want to understand the history beforehand. That's a, a nice recommendation. We're also getting some really nice comments from listeners. Uh, for example, a listener gives a shout out to the East Bay Tibetan restaurant Cafe Tibet and Nomad. And another listener asks, is your work similar to the Tibet Oral History Project, which is organized here in the Bay Area? Amy, are you familiar with that project? I am not, but would love to hear about it. Um, and um, but yes, would love to hear about that. Um, my book is narrative, so it's not um, a collection of of interviews with people. When I say a narrative, it's um, scenes and it's dialogue, but there's a lot of reporting in it because I'm a journalist. So. Um, the chapters are, are grouped chron- chronologically, but there's often a theme. Um, um, so one chapter 
one underlying theme is education, because that's something that the Dalai Lama had spoken about a lot when I saw him speak to Tibetans who had newly arrived um, to India. Um, there's another chapter about about women, but it's not it's not academic, so it reads like um, it's a travel log as well. Um, it's a travel narrative, um, but I think it's a little different than than other travel logs because it is very immersive, but there's a lot of reporting in it. So um, the journalism is woven in. Um, so perhaps you're not aware as you're reading it. Um, people have also mistakenly said, thought that this was a memoir. Mm -hmm. And while I'm, I am in the book, it's first person, uh, it's not actually a memoir, but it, it reads like a memoir. So um, there might be some similarities with capturing um, stories of people, but um, it's a narrative um, uh, literary journalism book that's also a travel book that I highly recommend. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the reporting you did. So in, in 2009, this was the year of the 50th anniversary of that failed Tibetan uprising, um, you know, back in, in 1959. And the commemorations that year were much more sober. Why, why was that? So the commemoration of Tibetan Uprising Day did go on as planned, but that year, um, the New Year celebration, which is called Losar, um, that year was in February. And usually this is the, you know, the biggest event in the Tibetan calendar with days of festivities, you know, think like New Year's and Christmas and Kwanzaa combined, right? Everything that we just had over the holidays. Um, and that year, the Tibetans in exile decided not to celebrate and to um, do that in solidarity with their um, compatriots in Tibet because there was so much repression under a crackdown um, uh, for the next year and even longer after those um, protests in March 2008. And so we're coming people, up on a break in a minute, so just wrap up. Yeah, that. Tibetans didn't feel like it was right for them to be celebrating. And so those were dark times. And, you know, I've definitely thought a lot about that during these times we're in as well, um, where there is darkness. And so so they decided to not celebrate that year and actually um, uh, boycott Losar in a way as a form of resistance. And this was and is kind of their biggest holiday of the year. So we will pick up there. Uh, after this break, we're talking about the stories of Tibetans who are living in Dharmasala in India. And then we will go beyond Dharmasala. Uh, after the break, we're joined by Amy Yi. She's a journalist and the author of a new book, Far From the Rooftop of the World. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim today, and we're talking about the stories of Tibetans who are living outside of Tibet, specifically in Dharmasala in India. And we're joined by Amy Yi. She's a journalist and the author of the new book, Far from the Rooftop of the World. And we want to hear from you. Do you have any connections to Tibet or Dharmasala? We'd love to hear your story. Maybe you have a question for Amy, or maybe you've witnessed or participated in Losar. We just touched on that. That is a Tibetan New Year. You can email your comments and your questions to forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. We're on Twitter or X, Instagram, or on Discord. You can also just give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And let's go to a caller, uh, David, in Berkeley. You're on the air. Yeah, thanks. Um, So I traveled in Tibet uh, for a while, and then I ended up... uh, sometime later in um, Dharamsala, actually McLeod Ganj. And I taught Tibetan refugees English there for a couple months. And I've been an ESL teacher for many, many years. And I'd have to say that out of all the uh, people that I've taught, the Tibetan refugees blew me away the most by how they were able to maintain their positive outlook on life after having experienced such horrors um, in Tibet and also in the crossing. I mean, I, I had students who had lost toes and fingers uh, crossing over the Himalayas in the wintertime, and and yet they would smile every day and come into class um, with such curiosity and earnest, um, you know, desire to, to learn and uh, I, I I miss those days so much, and, and and the people I met were just so lovely, and I will never, ever forget that time. And I also did meet the Dalai Lama there, got to shake his hand, and was just so happy to have experienced that. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sh- for sharing, David. Amy, do you want to talk a little bit about the the character, the personality that, that you witnessed? Do you, does that resonate what David is is oh, saying? Oh yeah, definitely it does. Um, I mean, just the. The Tibetans I mentioned by name already, I mean, they were um, just really lovely people in spite of having gone through so much. And then um, there's another person who we meet in the second chapter. His name is Norbu uh, in the book, and he was um, a teenager when he was accidentally near a protest in Lhasa and was swept up in a police raid and then, I mean, he was only 13 or 14, and after that, he was blacklisted from school. He couldn't work. Um, his family was really upset about his future, and so that's why his brother said, maybe you should go to India, because here, I'm not sure what you can do. And um, Norbu had lost everything and had to leave his family, and um, the the subtitle of that of that chapter, or maybe the title of the chapters, he said to me, since then I lost my chance. And it was just such a poignant description because he, he had lost so much and he just um, described it in such a um, an understated way. And he, um, when I met him, it took a while for me to realize that he was walking this um, holy circuit, this, it's called the Korah, every day, and he was praying so he could see his mother again one day. 
And then years later, when I met him again in Australia, because um, I, I went to visit him there, he got asylum in Australia. He, he was still trying to um, find a way to see his mother. Um, he had become an Australian citizen, but was not granted a visa by China. So still trying and still the same lovely person as well in Australia that he was when I met him in Dharmasala. Wow. Pamela writes, in the 1950s, my mother recognized the injustice and horrid treatment of the Tibetans in China. She became a Tibetan nun at the age of 60 and went to see the Dalai Lama several times, but was never able to enter Tibet. I taught in China in 2003 and was able to go to Tibet for myself, but mostly for her. I visited the Dalai Lama's former summer palace in Lhasa, which is now a museum. And I sat at his desk and I looked out of his office window and I cried because it should be him, not me, sitting there. And then I went outside to look up at the first blue sky I had seen in six months since I had been in China. I was laying in the grass and soon found myself encircled with Tibetans. I felt a deep sense of connection and shared a deeply spiritual moment. It was pure magic. Thank you so much for sharing That's that lovely. Yeah. anecdote, Pamela. Yeah, there's even there's a chapter in my in the book about... Tibetan women and especially Tibetan nuns and the the progress um, and advances that they have made in recent years. So that might be of interest. Fascinating. The spirit of the Tibetan people we've we've touched on, and and I think you know there maybe something just to to touch on is, is the self immolations. I mean, it's a horrible part to bring up, but we we were talking about the anniversary and how it was a very somber event uh, in in Dharmasala. In, in Tibet, things were, were very tense that year in 2009, and you write about a monk named Tape. What is his tragic story? Um, that was the first self-immolation in 2009, and, and that was uh, really shocking, um, just um, the loss of his life. Um, he had set himself on fire um, and eventually died. Um, in protest of what was happening, what is happening in Tibet. And so, unfortunately, sadly, there have been many more self-immolations since then. Um, I want to say over 130, and the number may be even larger. And that has happened in different parts of Tibet um, and, um, you know, a range of different people as well. So, so yeah. Mostly, mostly men and um, a few women as well. And yet, that kind of you know hor- horrific demonstra- demonstration, those kind of you know horrific demonstrations are happening. And and yet, you asked um, Sam Hong Rinpoche, who is the uh, governor in in Dharmasala, is kind of the exile uh, governor. Uh, prime Minister, excuse me, Governor's Prime Minister, about his reflections on the 50th anniversary of about the last 50 years. And he kind of had a surprisingly beautiful synopsis of these last 50 years of of this, of the exile. What did he say? Right. So Samdong Rinpoche, um, he was at the time the Prime Minister of the Tibetan exile government. And he's he was... Um, in his 60s or 70s at the time. And in March 2009, it was an extremely tense time in Tibet. There was a communications blackout. People were afraid of um, a more, you know, forceful crackdown by the uh, by China's government. Um, yet, when I asked Samdong Rinpoche what the 50th anniversary of the Tibetan exile meant to him, it was really um, such a memorable 
um, thing that he said, and I, I can read briefly from that, if you like. Um, um, so when I asked him, he seemed to visibly relax um, what, uh, when I asked what the 50th anniversary of the Tibetan exile meant to him. He sat up a little straighter, and for a moment his fatigue vanished. Um, um, uh, in the exhibition at the Tibet Museum, there were photos of Samdong Rinpoche from over the decades. One showed him as a much younger man, his face not yet gaunt and strained. Some of that vitality returned for a moment. He said, my memories of my life spent in Tibet are more clear than memories of yesterday, he declared nostalgically. Samdong Rinpoche looked into the distance and smiled. I remember the colors and shapes of trees in our monastery and the friends we debated with. The last 50 years have seen tremendous change, unbelievable change, so I'm satisfied in many ways. The last 50 years have been the darkest in our history, but Tibetan culture has spread to all corners of the world. His holiness, is meaning the Dalai Lama, is, is, is respected all over the world. That is a great achievement. We have modern education at the same time traditional education. In spite of his wariness, Samdong Rinpoche was hopeful about the future. He said, the rigidness of China's leadership will also change. I hope the next leadership will be more open and transparent. Sooner or later, China will have to be more democratic. Then the Tibet issue will be properly resolved. We have not wasted the past 50 years. We have used them properly. Mm. May I, yeah, wow. And, you know, the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan leaders, they really remain very steadfast in their support of nonviolence. But that doesn't mean that you didn't witness, you know, some real anger from the Tibetan people who are who are exiled. And you described this, I think, in a, in a really poignant scene. There was this carnival game, and this was in the year of the 50th anniversary. Tell us about that, that carnival game and, and what you witnessed there. Yeah, I think there's sometimes um, a misconception that Tibetans don't get angry. Of course, they get angry. They're, they're people. Um, and so on the 50th anniversary of the exile, um, some of the um, activist groups, I believe it was Tibetan Youth Congress, um, had organized um, a, a form of resistance, which was setting up a uh, carnival game uh, with a caricature of um, uh, China's leader, Hu Jintao, and um, people were throwing shoes at the um, board with his caricature. And um, if you may remember, um, there were Iraqis who had thrown shoes at um, George Bush, who was president at the time. So um, they got the idea from that. And so um, Tibetans were lining up to like hurl shoes at this um, wooden board. Um, and, you know, it's it's a, a form of resistance. And, um, you know, I, I, that's still not violent. Um, um, but it might be a little surprising to some people. But of course, there will be, they, there will be anger. They, they, they are humans and <laughs> wouldn't For be human sure. w without being able to, to express all sentiment, all emotions. Well, John has kind of an interesting question. I'm not sure if you can touch on it, but he says, several years ago, I met a couple of Tibetans at a Tibetan event. One monk from Dharmasala told me about CIA involvement in Tibet and that Tibetans were still operating guerrilla groups in their country. Did you hear anything about this among the Tibetans in exile? Oh, sure. I mean, this is from the 60s, um, where the CIA actually did back um, Tibetan um, guerrilla fighters. Um, the program was um, ended 
Um, I'm not aware of any uh, guerrilla movements in Tibet today, but that was that happened in the 60s. Well, you are listening to Forum. I am Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim, and we're talking about the stories of Tibetans who are living outside of Tibet in Dharmasala in India and beyond, and their efforts to preserve their culture abroad. And we're joined by Amy Yi. She's a journalist and author of the new book, Far From the Rooftop of the World. We'd love to hear from you. Do you have any connections to Tibet or Dharmasala? You can, we'd love to hear your story. You can email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org or give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Amy, you've said that we often neglect the human part of human rights. What do you mean by that? This occurred to me after I gave one of my first book talks where the focus was human rights, and it it sort of felt very, very dark and grim. And um, in some respects, you know, when we're talking about human rights, we're, we're often talking about violations. And something that I felt was missing in um, that talk was just the emphasis on the being human part of it. And so do we really only focus on human rights when there's terrible violation? How about some kind of celebration of uh, when human rights can be fully, you know, expressed and when they can flourish? So um, that's one reason I wanted to kind of express that um, the book is also about that resilience and that triumph. Of course, there are sad sad stories and tragic stories, but um, the reason I wrote the book was um, a feeling of inspiration from people I met and what I saw. Um, and then I just quickly want to add that um, uh, on human rights that um, Chinese, I met a lot of Chinese democracy activists during um, the, the process of reporting this book, and the things they want are similar to what Tibetans want. Of course, Tibetans want to keep their language and their culture, but um, I think ordinary Chinese people would also agree that they want to feel safe and not threatened, and that they want to be able to express themselves peacefully. Um, I mean, that's fundamental, um, and that's human rights, and um, it's, it really encompasses everyone who lives in China. Well, I, I want to touch again. We've we've sort of peppered that we're going to talk about the Tibetans who are living outside of Tibet and even beyond Dharmasala in India. And, and you attended, um, in Australia, you attended their New Year Losar. And what did what did you witness there? Yeah, that's um, one of the examples of um, that was, that were examples that were you know awe-inspiring and amazing. So, um, as I mentioned before, um, in two thousand nine, the new year was canceled basically in in exile, um, and then in two thousand fifteen, when I was in Australia, um, I unexpectedly um, was invited to the Lothar celebration, and I managed to find. Um, the, the community hall where, where it was held, and um, it was a party. It was amazing. It was, uh, you know, people were making momos, these dumplings, and other Tibetan food, and um, 
there was a, a stage and people, um, there was a dance floor. So people were in their traditional dress um, from all different parts of Tibet, by the way. Tibet's not a monolith. Um, and they were dancing, they were doing traditional Tibetan dance, but then they were also dancing disc, you know, Gangnam style. And at one point the DJ was like, it's time to disco. <laughs> and everyone was whooping and cheering and laughing. And instead of drinking like um, the um, uh, Chong, which is the uh, Tibetan barley beer, people were drinking Foster's, the Australian beer. So it just was a you know wonderful example of um, Tibetan culture being transplanted elsewhere and and taking root there, but it's still still being Tibetan, but happening in this new home in Australia all the way. And so that is really far from the rooftop of the world. Um, when I started the book, I never anticipated going to Australia, but um, that's really far from the rooftop. Let's very quickly sneak in a call from Timothy in San Francisco. Timothy, you have about 30 seconds. Timothy, hello, my name is Timotha, and I feel very moved by this interview. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Um, I have been to Tibet twice, and Bhutan, and North India, Salpema, etc. Um, it's a, it's my heart, and I was able to do all of this from the inspiration of Lama Sultram Alioni. Um, <clears throat> in 1992, I met her, and I've been practicing Vajrayana since then. Um, she is the founder of Tara Mandala in southern Colorado. Beautiful. Timotha, thank you so much for for sharing that anecdote. We've been talking about Tibetans who are living in in exile in Dharmasala in India and beyond. Uh, We've been joined by Amy Yi. She's a journalist and author of the new book, Far from the Rooftop of the World, Travels Among Tibetan Refugees on Four Continents. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all the callers and listeners. This Hour of Forum is produced by Caroline Smith, Mark Nieto, and Dan Zoll. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo, Marnette Federis, and Jennifer Ng are our engagement producers, and Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Susie Britton is our lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Catherine Monahan, and Chris Beal. Our intern is Amako Oda, and our vice president of news is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.